This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15 and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 343 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week, as many of you in the fire service will know, that episode number is a very pertinent number for us and our profession, having lost 343 firefighters in the 9-11 tragedy. So I am so proud to bring on a fellow firefighter, Jody Escabel. Now, Jody is not only a firefighter, but she's a tactical paramedic. She is a yoga instructor and also a professional MMA fighter having fights in the UFC. So as you can imagine, this is an incredibly powerful conversation. There are so many elements to this that you're going to enjoy. Before we get to this interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating makes us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this project is a free library for you, the audience, whether it's individually, within a department, within a company. All I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, please enjoy my conversation with Jody Escobel. Enjoy. Well, Jody, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Planet Earth today, um, I am in Albuquerque, New Mexico, born and raised. 
Um, sunny. It's really warm today. 97, 98. Dry, very dry here. Brilliant. And um, so starting at the very beginning of your journey, where were you born? And then what was your family dynamic like? What did your parents do and how many siblings? I was born right here in Albuquerque. I have one older brother. He is now living in Austin. Um, I grew up with both parents. Um, they are still married. Very strong um, family upbringing, which I attribute a lot of my... Uh, I don't know if you call it success, but maybe work ethic, ethic too. You know, my dad always taught me to, to work really hard. And if you, if you wanted to go get something, you put your head down and, and, um, you put in the time. And, and I think that's, um, a huge part of who I am. And so I'm thankful to my parents, um, and their strength within each other is, is unbelievable. That's, um, also something that I, I've learned as I've gotten older what that really meant. As as a kid growing up, you're kind of just whatever you mean, take things for granted. But as I as I get older, I really see um, what it means to be a family unit, and that's really important to me. Also, um, so born and raised here, yeah. I've been lucky enough to travel a ton, um, but really happy with New Mexico. Brilliant. Yeah, I automatically said, where were you born? And you just answered that in the opening thing. So I apologize, but most people aren't, aren't where they, they were born. So um, what about your parents' careers? What did they do? My dad was a biomed um, tech. He helped out with an ice, uh, like an ophthalmology company here. And my mom was a homemaker. They also had a business when we were growing up. Uh, my grandmother did a lot of of the raising of me when I was young because my parents were working hard to um, provide. So they were out um, working. And I, I think the beginning years of my early childhood were fondly um, peppered in with my grandmother's upbringing. So. Brilliant. Now, I read somewhere that you had um, military and first responders in your family. So who were those? My grandfather was um, in the military. And, you know, um, I feel like I have a handful of cousins that are serving and my grandfather was the, was a huge, huge driving force in my life and, and kind of, um, I don't know, it was weird. It was weird. It was weird being a female firefighter because I'm definitely the only one, and I'm um, definitely the only female that's kind of dabbling in. I I support. We'll get into that later. But I the paramedicine contract work that I do. We we support the SWAT team, so it's very, um, you know, a male driven type of field. But um, I definitely had a lot of family members and a lot of influence that. Um, helped me gotcha well speaking of that then so i know that you are I, I, wiki says five one and ufc says five three so educate me uh, how, how tall are you we'll take the difference we'll go five two <laughs> okay so let me put it another way you are not exceptionally tall for a woman my wife's actually four foot nine so you're much taller than her um and i really want to explore the athletic side you know there's there's a lot of prejudice when it comes to anyone saying that they want to be in the tactical profession being told they're too fat too short too small 
the wrong sex. Um, so as an athlete, what did you do in uh, school? What were the sports that you were playing? Yeah, um, you know, I kind of, not that I regret anything. I feel like I um, I would have played high school sports a little bit more, but I was actually already kickboxing um, at the time. And so every time I tried to like either go to track practice or whatever, it was conflicting with um, kickboxing. And that was where my heart was already at a young age. So at the age of 13, um, 14, I walked into Mike Winklejohn's kickboxing gym. Um, and I, he's been my one and only coach this whole time and, and still train with him to this day. But, um, yeah, I didn't play sports in high school. I was already kickboxing, which is crazy to think about. That is. And what got you into that? What, what made you take your very first step into the martial arts? Yeah, you know what? My parents were amazing. And I was right at that age 13. I was uh, hanging out with the wrong crowd of people. Um, I had done, I had participated in sports prior to, but never really stuck on anything. So I've done gymnastics and soccer and all those things. But at the age of 13, I found it, um, more thrilling, if you will, to hang out with older people and do older people things. So, um, my parents were like, hey, we got to figure something out. You're either going to play sports, you're going to do the kickboxing, karate, something. Because my parents knew from the outside looking in that I definitely needed an outlet of some sort. And uh, they saved my life. My, I mean, my parents saved my life and Mike Winklejohn saved my life. And I can talk about that now because I maybe somebody's in that position. But before I didn't realize what what gravity it held because when I went to my first kickboxing lesson, I was under the influence. Um, I wasn't even sober and I thought, and that's at 13, man, like what, what is going on? Um, I thought, you know what, that would be really cool. I think that was a really cool experience. I'm not sure because I was under the influence, but I'd like to go back and try it sober. And so I did, and that was pretty much the end of me dabbling in all the things that I was dabbling at that age. And um, I clung on to martial arts. That's awesome. Now, the, what's really kind of resonated with me, when I spoke to Greg, I had Greg Jackson on a few weeks ago, and we were discussing the difference between you know, the fighters in the gym and the martial artists in the gym and the, and the kind of different paths that they take. And then Tate talked about, you know, kind of being in a in a similar place before he found martial arts um and it sounds like you kind of took more of the martial arts track where you weren't just punching and kicking people but you actually had that martial kind of inner growth going on as well yes absolutely and maybe you know it was very surface area in the beginning and um as as you spend years and years and years of your life in it and you evolve through martial arts, you learn all these lessons and, and, um, you know, step one at that young age was like, shape up, man, like shape up, sober up, which is crazy to say, and, um, be better than that. And I, so I didn't want to hang out with those people anymore because, uh, Holly Holm was, uh, training at the same time at the same place. And I was like, man, um, she's one of my best friends. We grew up together in the gym. I've lived with her for a period of time in my life, like, um, huge influence in my life. Um, but I never wanted 
to go out and party because I knew Holly was going to run seven miles on Saturday morning. I couldn't be out hanging out with the, the wrong crew. And that quickly changed my, who I wanted to hang out with and what I wanted to feel like. And, um, that was crazy. That was huge. Now, how, how did you, what, what, looking back to you attribute your toughness to, because I, I've been a weekend warrior martial artist for most of my life, but I have never competed in, I did, I did, uh, WTF Taekwondo was about as close to full contact, full contact sparred a huge amount, but never got in the ring or the, the cage to compete because to me, that's like another level above most of us, most of the people in, you know, they're even in gyms. So what do you attribute in your younger years to getting that toughness to actually be not just a, a martial artist, but a competitive fighter as well? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think some people, you know, like they always say, like, you can't teach tough, right? You can't teach tough. You can't, um, like you, you have it or you don't. And, and I don't know that that's super true. Like I, I felt like in the very beginning, I knew that I was tougher than most and where, I don't know, where does that come from? My, my parents just saying, Hey, like, uh, my, you know, my mom was held back a lot in her, her mom was very protective of her and didn't allow her to do her many things. And so when my mom was like, man, I'm never going to do that to my daughter. We always joke kind of like, well, that went full boat the other way. Like you just let me do everything. And I believed in it. And I, I believed I could do anything and everything. And and man, that toughness just kind of transfers over into to every part of your life. Like every day is a hard day. Some some not every day is a hard day. Some people have hard days. Like and and what is your level of toughness and what's going to allow you to keep going and where's your baseline at and all the things. But I just knew mine was really really high, um, probably too high for my own good, and it absolutely was too high for my own good. Um, in in a handful of fights where it was like man I have no way out but I'm just silly tough like I'm just gonna get beat on for the rest of this fight and there's like this is it like I'm gonna be here in the fight and and uh I just I don't know I I've I love that feeling I love the feeling of the pressure I love the feeling of even being a, an underdog I love the hard work aspect of it and I love the opportunity to rise to an occasion, I think. And that's been since since very young. Yeah, well, you obviously carry that over to, you know, a pretty tough profession being the fire service as well, depending obviously on the call that you're on. Um, how? What were your career aspirations when you were at school? Was it the fire service or did you dream of doing something else? No, it was absolutely the fire service. Um, I did an internship with the fire department when I was like a freshman in high school and I just couldn't wait to be old enough to test to get into the academy and um, I definitely lived the fire department before I even got there like that was a hundred percent my dream my career dream um, I it's odd of course like all of us that are first responders definitely take a different way and and we talk about rising to the occasion and, and there's something in all of us that are being able to perform in the moment. Right. And, and so I think even being competitive at a young age and, and wanting to put myself in that position that, that fell in line with the fire department. 
you know, I knew that it was going to be a hard career, especially for a very smaller stature, stature of a female and be a female. And I wanted to have that challenge and I wanted to make sure that I didn't test on the males, uh, male versus female standards. And I, I tested on all the males standards and, and I made sure that, you know, that I was going to be top to get top cadet for sure. And like, nobody was going to outdo me or question if I could do the job, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's brilliant. That's something I've talked about over and over and over again is there's only two types of firefighter to me and that's the ones that can the ones that can't simple as that you know so and when we put our gear on it's actually literally a visual illustration of that very concept like we have no idea what color creed race sexual orientation um you know we, we are when we're in a fire wearing all our gear but you can tell who's the shit firefighter by watching them and then vice versa but with that smaller stature what kind of training or or tools did you bring into the fire service that set you up for success to be able to manage, you know, the, the fire ground tasks extremely well? Attic crawl spaces. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were made for those. <laughs> yep. yep. I mean, I would be on a completely different assignment and they'd be like, where's Escabel at? Get her in the attic. Because I was like the only one that was going to fit bunked up and get, you know, but no, that's funny. Uh, you know what? Naturally, what kicked my ass was ladders. And um, so with that, I had a captain that um, had all the belief in me and would meet me anytime, any day. And we just worked and worked and worked and worked. And, hey, we're going to have to figure this out. It's going to be a little bit different. My pivot point is a lot different than a six foot two male's pivot point on a 35 foot extension ladder. And the department that I um, started in was is a smaller department. And so there were things that we didn't have five in five man engine companies, four man engine companies. We didn't have the extra people coming. And so I had to be sure that I was beyond proficient in everything that uh, everything that came across the table and what. I, to answer your question in the long run, sorry, um, what I brought to the table was exactly that. I, I think that I had such a chip on my shoulder that I knew that I had to be better than everybody and um, train harder and know my job better. And I, I think that that was something that somebody maybe in more comfortable situation didn't really have that fire. And I had to have that fire. Yeah, and I love that because I think that's that's – some people look at a body type and go, well, it's not fair. They're, you know, they're big, so they can do that ladder throw or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think like MMA, like CrossFit, like, you know, the fire service, and you said it perfectly, you kind of beat me to the punch as well. Like the, we all have tasks that we're going to excel in. We're going to have tasks that we're going to struggle in. Like you said, the big tall guys are not going to have too many problems with the ladders. However, 20 flights of stairs with all your gear on, they're probably the ones that are going to need the help and you're going to be the one flying to the top. So the common denominator, the common theme between all those shapes and sizes is hard work. If you're prepared to work on your weaknesses, you can be a great firefighter. But if you just kind of give up mentally and go, oh, you know, I'll never be a firefighter. I'm only five foot two. Then, yeah, you're right in your own chapter then. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, then, so you were a firefighter. When did you start transitioning into competing in MMA specifically? I was, let's see, I was had been in the fire department for about eight years already. And I had actually my first pre- 
professional fight while in the fire department in MMA. So I had completely made the transition over while I was still professionally firefighting. And so I was trying to juggle two professions, essentially. Knowing full well um, now with (laughs) with the immersion that I've done in the physical mental health space within our profession, you were you were still training the whole time. Obviously, you started competing towards the end. What were your observations mentally and physically of the shift work on your performance as a high-level athlete? I just couldn't. I just couldn't pull it together for practice. Um, so I worked 48-hour shifts. And my off-going morning, I was able to get off in time to make it to practice which was probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I did that for years, probably two, three years. I would work a 48-hour shift, and then I would go into the morning practice at 10.30 and get the shit beat out of me. And I would be, well, there you are, so you're sleep-deprived, and then you have all the head trauma. And then I'm like, man, I don't understand. Like, last week, whatever day, like, I, I can kill these, like, I should be lighting these people up, and, and I, you know, you just kind of just brush it off, and okay, cool, yeah, yeah, I know I'm groggy the first morning I get off, that it, it is what it is, and, and that's what you do, you just put your head down, and you go to work, and it's like, man, you talk about your hard work ethic, but there's times where you gotta be smart, too, like, you gotta, you gotta figure things out, you gotta educate yourself, you gotta really check in with yourself, And you really, really have to do that after a shift. And you can't brush it off like, oh, yeah, 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 Um, no big deal. Um, I was brushing everything off and going to practice and training uh, at a high level. And and I think that I lost a handful of fights because of that. Yeah, well, you have that combination. There's something I learned a little while ago where... You said the the traumatic brain injury, you know, the 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 impact of heavy sparring, obviously even more if you're if you're in a you know a long slog of a fight, is going to cause a lot of damage. And then they've they've shown now in the sleep medicine world that sleep deprivation mimics the same damage. The myelin sheath can kind of get stripped away. So when you look at a shift worker who's also in combat sports. It really kind of it's scary when when you add trauma on top of trauma like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I did it for years and was wondering why, like I was right there at the high level and I felt like I should have been hitting that tipping point a little bit earlier in my career. And and it finally took me a really long time to transition out of shift work into really putting everything into being a professional athlete, because I know that that was just taking its toll, the sleep deprivation and the head trauma and, and even just the ability to recover properly. Like I just couldn't ever catch up. I would be feel fine finally, maybe by my like second day off. And then I had to start preparing to go back to work. But like people are hitting, people are feeling good when they're training for a fight three, four days in a row. And then maybe they have an off day. Well, I was having one day on maybe if I slept good enough to try to re- uh, undo what my, I don't know, sometimes I slept through the night at work and sometimes I didn't. Like, I think that's even worse. I think it would have better been better just to like work night shift. So at least my body was regular. 
but you know, when you work shift work, it's like, hell yeah, I slept 24 hours. I slept both nights, like cheated the system, got, got six hours both nights, like cool. And then the next shift, you didn't sleep not one bit. You took a couple of naps during a 48-hour shift. Come on. That's yeah. crazy. Well, and even the quality of sleep. I think there's every every first responder around the planet that works the same kind of 24s will testify that even if you get that anomaly where you don't get a call, it's not quality sleep because you got one eye open the whole time. No, never. And you don't sleep well when you get off a shift for the first night. Exactly. And what about injuries? Because another thing that I, you know, kind of started unpacking with sleep deprivation is, and you, you hit the nail on the head, is the ability to recover or the ability to, to repair as well. So when in most fire departments, you get kind of berating of the fit guys, oh, they always get hurt. It's like, well, that's the science because they're trying to train, but they had, don't have the ability to actually recover and heal from that training. So did you find that you seem to get injured a little bit more than some of the people in the gym as well? I felt like, you know, I feel like maybe just because I was young, um, I was kind of combating that in a way, but I definitely felt that I was always fighting the almost injury. So like never like significant, like sideline injuries or like even anything I would miss practice or work for. But I always felt like, uh, I don't know. And I don't know if I knew exactly what that felt like. And that's what's hard. And that's what I want to to preach a little bit on is like really knowing what it feels like to feel good. And I now looking back, I knew that I was, I know that I was fighting injury for like three years when I was competing at a high level and working shift work. I know that feeling now was that at the time it was just kind of like, I'm just tired or like, maybe I couldn't do that. Maybe I was holding myself back to sit from certain workouts because I didn't know what like I was gonna snap a hamstring or something but like why was I feeling that way because I wasn't recovering I wasn't I didn't have anything and I didn't know what that felt like until I felt what had the ability to feel good and what what feel good and baseline should be versus I just push through it yeah well I retired after 14 years and you know what I've noticed and I think this I did half half a career of some firefighters but that baseline is slowly dropping and dropping and dropping but it's so slow it's kind of like adding tepid water to a bath you know you don't notice the change you know that you look back after 20 years and and you have no idea that you are so far below where you were when you entered the profession and what i found i've been retired almost two years now and it's that's incredible. Like I'm a completely different person. People tell me I look younger now, which you know I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a young looking dude, anyway. So that's a compliment. But <laughs> but uh, it is. I mean, you, you, your skin looks good. You you think clearer. You're able to do a lot more volume as far as as work workouts. Um, yeah. I mean, so it really does show you the damage not only on the on the brain but the rest of the body as well. And that's what I feel bad about too. And I do have I have multiple friends, especially now that I'm also. Like the people that I went through the fire academy with are retiring now. Like they're full, like 20 year guys. Now it's 25 years here in this, in New Mexico is that 25 year retirement. But still people gawk at that a little bit. Like, oh yeah, I mean, you get in when you're 20 and you retire when you're 40. But it's like, man, uh, the toll that that 20 years took on that person's life their livelihood, their family life, their ability to maybe have a family or not, um, the quality of that, uh, those relationships with those people, like, 
uh, Matt, I don't know. That's not 20 years. Isn't worth it. I mean, you should, this should be like a 10 year retirement in my opinion. It's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, I think the other, other answer to that, cause I agree with you completely. Either we leave it exactly as it is, just say, oh, we're going to run our people into the ground and therefore it's more like the military where, you know, you do a couple of tours, you know, or, you know, a couple of, uh, I don't even know what the terminology is, but you're there for, for 10 years or so. And then, and then you, you out and you transition and you go to another career or, which I think option B would be much better in my opinion. We invest a lot more into our firefighters, put more staffing in there, create more like the 2472 shift so that you do one shift and then have three days, well, technically two days to recover fully. And therefore you're not destroying your responders and you can have these more, you know, salty veterans that are still actually healthy, you know, 15, 20 years in their career. Right, right, absolutely. It's it's definitely um it's definitely a lifestyle, you know. And I wish I wish I knew the things I knew now that I I did when I first started my career. Of course, I everybody says that when they're either, you know, transitioning out or transitioned out or you know, all the things, but man. Oof. Yeah, now a lot of people I know struggle when they transition out. Um, you know, especially if they're hurt, if they're retiring. So some, some of the factors where they didn't make a decision to go, okay, I'm going to go from here and I'm going to go over there now and here's my plan. But you did have that other tribe. So you had almost like a firehouse experience with, um, you know, with Jackson and Winkle John and all the fighters that you train with. So how was your transition? I, man, I've just had these tribes of, like you said, tribe is, is a cool way to, that's how culture was like we had these communities villages of people that took care of each other and and i've had that i had that in the fire service and i had that in the uh jackson's winks and we still have it now and it's a family and and now that i support we uh do contract work and i support the swat teams for the state um that's another brotherhood and and it's it's um People will never know what that's like that don't work either in uh, or have that team, even team sports, like team sports, you get that to an extent. But, um, you know, the fire department, you depend on on that person with your life. And a team sport, you can be like, all right, time out. Like, I'm good. I don't want to play anymore. But like in a fire, you there's no timeouts. Or in a SWAT call out, there's no timeouts. And so I think that raises... Um, it raises the closeness of our of our tribe, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then shifting focus a little bit because uh, I, I want to make sure I got the timeline right. When did you? When and how did you find yoga? Yeah, that's a good question. I've got, I already kind of forgot about that. I found yoga because when I was transitioning into MMA, my hips were really tight and naturally everything is red line right um in my life uh, i was the firefighter fighting um compete 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 the best of everything i have to be better than everybody all the things and it was like man also talk about adrenal fatigue and what we're doing to our body and like longevity like just the way that i was living was um uh i needed a balance 
And so I was essentially forced into that by tight hips and jujitsu. And I a hundred percent needed something to balance my, uh, the red line out, man. It was, it was, I was going to run myself out, I think. And so tell me about your journey. Cause I've had, um, you know, a few people here that actually brought yoga to the first responder community. They've had incredible success with everyone that's actually managed to swallow their ego and, you know, <laughs> just try it. I do yoga myself, um, you know, from a DVD at home, Rodney's DVD and, you know, swear by it. I think it's incredible. But what was your journey from trying it with those tight hips? And then, and then also, like you said, the, the mental element as well. You know, I, um, which is kind of funny because I was like, oh yeah, I think I'll open a yoga studio also. I practiced yoga for about a year and I kind of really still took only the very surface area, very like, okay, I need to stretch my hips for jujitsu. It wasn't anything more than that until I, w- I went to my yoga teacher training class and I, my initial plan was just to get a certification so that I could teach yoga. Like that was all I needed. I didn't need some spiritual journey, like yada, yada, yada. That all sounds like bull crap to me. I'm this super tough beyond, um, competitive person that don't need, doesn't need any type of spiritual guidance. And so I went to this teacher training to get the certification and it a hundred percent absolutely changed my life. And it was the most humbling, one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had. And it was exactly that, some this magical spiritual spiritual journey that I was forced into. And I thought that we were just going to be doing yoga and yoga on the beach nonetheless because I was in the Bahamas. I didn't ever even see the ocean because we were up at 5 chanting. And then we went to sleep at like 7 p.m. But we had to wash our white linen pants before we went to sleep. Like it was like this uh, like little camp of chanting and lecture and spirituality and minimalist type lifestyle that I was like, oh, I don't need this. And I called home crying and was like, man, I just spent all my money to take this stupid class that I don't even need that is not in line with what I just need the certification so I can teach classes. Um, this is so stupid. And Keith was actually the one of the people that was like, man, just stick it out. Just give it a couple more days. And I did. And it was the greatest thing that I could have ever done. And I cried like a baby leaving there. And I didn't want to go. And I wanted to stay there in this simple island and live this simple life with no TV, no internet, no cell phones, no coffee. Like I just this world that I would have never ever dreamed of being comfortable and I yearned for now interesting question because I mean I, I can visualize exactly what you're talking about and it you know it sounds awful to some people amazing to other people but uh, yeah they who are running you know god knows how many thousand rpm through most of your life you know even when you walk through the door of the gym you know you were you were kind of searching for something in the the drug world or alcohol world when you were forced to be present and actually look inside, what were some of the things that you found out about yourself? It was exactly that. Um, why, why, why was I seeking this feeling of adrenaline? 
why did I always have to push to the edge to feel that? Why did I always like, who are you really? Like who, where does that come from? And it doesn't have to be something that's negative. It just, you have to have a better understanding and really understand who you are as a person and, and make sure that that's coming from um, a healthy, a healthy spot. And, and if it's not, then evaluate that. And it was more of like, who I really was at that, at that, um, I didn't know. It was just kind of like, oh, I, I have to do all these things at this high speed. But you know why I did it is because it put you in the present moment. Every time you run a call or you're in a fire, you don't think about everything else. You think about the moment you, you let your body take over your training you're confident in yourself and you flow like it's that flow state and and I got that from 911 I got that from fighting I got that from all these different things and it just happened to be that it had to be um at the time it had to be um like an adrenaline dump to put me in the present moment and and that's what I'm fighting for that's what that's what I found like okay well that's why you do it that's not a horrible thing, but you got to understand that. And I could have been a horrible thing because yeah, when you do drugs, sometimes you feel like there's nothing else that matters and you're right in the moment. Like that's not the right, that's not the same thing. That's not, that was in a, in a negative light and the wrong way. And, and really exploring that makes me, um, accept what I did when I was younger and never want to be in that light again. See, that's such a fantastic uh, insight. And I'm so glad I asked you because I'm not a high-level MMA fighter, like I said, but I did martial arts my whole life. I did spar with a lot of great people. Actually, I was at uh, Colin Oyama's gym for a while and training with Carla Esparza, um, who I know that you did the the um, the show with. But, yeah. um, but you know, the same thing. I was talking to Tate. Like, I've, I've been a stuntman. I've, you know, I've been a firefighter. I've been a martial artist. and But I didn't have a traumatic you know, an overly traumatic childhood at all. But even now in retirement, I don't know if you had this kind of sense, but I think when you've done this kind of profession, you get that adrenal fatigue and you almost feel like you kind of need to up the ante a little bit. And it kind of reminds me of um, watching Cowboy Cerrone from the outside looking in. Like, it seems like he's constantly chasing that that flow state. But um, yeah, I mean, it like you said, you hit it on the head though. It can be really destructive chasing that, or it can be very rewarding, and you're just trying to excel in that one and search for that one moment. Um, I've had a couple of of moments. One was in a, a martial arts competition a couple of times, actually on the fire ground or even in the medical corps. Can you think to any specific times in the fire service or fighting where you had a true, true flow state moment? Yeah, absolutely. You know... Um which is kind of cool in a way because I've had multiple fights where I was like, man, uh, looking back because in the moment you don't think like, Oh, this is it. I feel it because then you're already gone. Like you've already lost the moment. If you're thinking like, cause you're seeking it and you're wanting it and you, and sometimes you fight and you never came even close. And those are probably, I can't speak for everybody, but those were some of my worst fights where I was just like, man, I just can't get there. Like I was almost there. I could almost feel it. And the whole time I'm thinking that, and also the whole time I'm three steps behind. But I think the most recent um, flow state was 
a medical call, which is kind of crazy because it's always been just, I think the medical calls are taking over um, a little bit just because right now um, things are so crazy and I've been trying to help out as much as I can where I can in these um, trying times of our nation. But um, we had a, uh, we had a, the cool thing about this, the responding with a SWAT team is we respond in rural New Mexico. So at times I'm it. Um, and usually I'm a single resource operating as a paramedic by myself. And I was getting ready to leave to Nepal and it was actually my shift. And I had a friend cover me, uh, cause I thought I had to do a meeting anyway, push comes to stuff. He's covering the call. I have a really bad feeling. And I was like, man, it's really far. It's in the middle of nowhere. I have a bad feeling. And he's like, it's cool, man. If you need to pack and do all this stuff, I got it. No big deal. And I was like, okay. And he's super squared and way medic, like way, uh, has many more years than I do. And he was like, dude, don't even worry about it. It's cool. So cool. Go to sleep, wake up like an hour before the call is supposed to happen. And I'm like, nope. Like I'm driving out to the middle of New Mexico, nowhere. And I'm going to this call because I don't know. I just have this feeling. And sure enough, it was the feeling that I, I'm so glad that I listened to. And when I got there, I told the guys like, Hey, I'm driving POV in the stack. Like, don't freak out. It's me at the very tail end of your stack. <laughs> They'll start yeah. shooting at you. <laughs> yeah. And so I called the, and I said, Hey, it's me. I had a bad feeling. And the team leader of the, the tech team was like, you know what? I was just going to call you and ask you if you could come up. I'm so glad you're here. And I was like, thanks. And he's like, Hey, I got a bad feeling too. And I was like, all right, it's cool. Like, it's cool. Like we're doing everything we can. Like we'll be safe. We got it. And, um, the call transpired so quickly and so crazily that it was like, man, I'm really glad I was there. And I, I just remember getting the call from the guy saying, Hey, there's a lot of blood. We see a lot of blood. We're pulling them out. And I was at the, at the back of the Bearcat and boom, like the next thing I knew I was landing a helicopter and we're flying this guy to the, our trauma one center. And it was like, okay, all the things happened in that. I hung blood TXA. Um, we wound packed. He was actually answering questions by the time we got him to fly. Like, I, it was the most flow that I had felt. And, and looking back, I'm like, well, shit, you know, you got to do a report and you got to make sure that everything happened. But like everything happened. And the guys from the outside looking in were like, we've never seen anything so smooth ever. Like you, like you and Matt was uh, my partner at the time that I went up there to meet. He would, they were like, we've never seen people work like that before. It was, and the, the thing is, we, oh, we always see the tech guys do cool things and clear houses and do all these, these cool stuff. And I think sometimes they forget, like, that's their flow state doing all that. And I'm like, man, that looked awesome. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it was whatever. And I'm like, no, it was really cool. And so it was funny to have the the tables turned a little bit where they were like, man, you guys, you guys were just smooth. Like everything was so fast. And um, we definitely had a save that day. So it was cool. That's, that's incredible. I know for my own personal, you know, experiences, one thing that I know is now looking back is that there was no doubt 
And the only way there could be no doubt is if you put the work in. So, you know, I found in that that time, everything flowed because we did the work, the stressors were there, and then we were in that relaxed state as well. And all those three combined, you know, created that. And I think that, you know, that is an, yet another reason why training so uh, deliberately, you know, with intent and then also diligently is so important. It's not just on the surface, like, oh, because you have to train. It's like, you know, you're, you're getting ready for those moments where it might be so challenging that you're either going to do one or two things, find yourself in a flow state, perform extremely well, or it can be a complete cluster and someone might die. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think that's where it's like, man, that's really holding a lot of weight because if I don't perform well under pressure, or I have an off night in the cage, like, yes, there are fatalities, um, from martial arts. Absolutely. But it's, it's lesser if I can't, um, work a, a multi-trauma or, you know, it, it's, le- and it's on somebody else and it's not on me. Like I can carry responsibility for myself just fine. And that's why I didn't play team sports either. Like if that kid over there is just playing in the grass and I'm over here busting my ass, like that's not fair. And that's going to show on fight night or on game day, whatever that is. And I want to be ready. Like I want to be able to perform and, and when it's somebody else's life and somebody's family, like, man, that's a lot of pressure to, to, and how do you not just want to train all the time? How do you not want to know your protocols, um, back and forth? You can't just go through the motions on this. No, well, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that you think would be all that would be needed to be said to make sure everyone trains at a high level. But as you and I both know, and, you know, it's a double-edged sword. There's partly lack of ownership and partly, you know, as we mentioned, the shift work really beats the motivation out of a lot of people after, you know, 10 plus years. But yeah, I mean, to understand that lives are at stake should be at the core of everything that you do. And you're, yeah, it's like, I think it's really hard. I think it's a really hard, especially now getting late into my career as far as um, public service is like, how many per- high percentage of the calls, I, it depends on your service or whatever, like, yeah, yeah, we just train for that one time that might happen. And it's like, man, I can't, I can't even, that that mindset is so scary to me. And I, I just won't, I just can't have it. I can't have it around. I can't, I don't want anything to do with it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a great analogy using MMA. You know, if you're a, if you're a wrestler and you don't train, you know, with a striker all the time or, you know, or with a judica, for example, you know, someone that's that's different and you just say, oh, I'm just going to outrest. I'm going to take him down. That's it. Then as we've seen over and over again, you know, the the judo guy or the, the karate guy or the capoeira, you know, woman show up and they throw something out of left field and next thing they're lying you know, unconscious on the floor. So just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen. And that's funny that you say that because I cheated MMA. I kickboxed for, what, seven years? I was a professional boxer before I turned, well, once you're pro, you're pro. But once I transitioned to MMA, I had multiple boxing matches under my belt. Um, World title fights, uh, 10, 12-round fights. Like, I knew these girls 
didn't have the hands that I did. And so when I transitioned to MMA, I was exactly that person. I said, I'm going to defend the takedown, get back to my feet and box these chicks up. Of course, like, yeah, duh. Like, and then cool, won a couple MMA fights doing just that kind of fighting, kind of um, defensively fighting or, or whatever. And, and then um, got taken down and choked out in like 30 seconds. How about that? And so then I fell into a gi and I did jujitsu and I didn't do any other class. And for six months, I did jujitsu three times a day, seven days a week. And was like, well, here you go. There's your humble pie. Yeah, well, I mean, I've talked about this in, in interviews before. I took a very, very gentle slope in the martial arts. Started in Taekwondo, then went to Shotokan. And, and like every time, you know, I did well. I won national titles and then went to the next gym. Okay, now it's boxing and then got my ass handed to me. All right, but then, then went to Muay Thai, got my ass handed to me, then went to Jiu-Jitsu. I'm like, Jesus, when are you going to stop humbling me? I get it. <laughs> I'm super humble. Stop I- killing me in the gym. But that's yeah. it. You have to. You have to understand that... You know, the way MMA is specifically, there are, there are so many tools. And I think that's the, you know, the really interesting thing as an athlete watching different gyms, different coaches is how do you balance those tools to make someone as rounded, as well rounded as possible without taking away their, their core strength as well? Right. Definitely. And, and I think that's, um, a big play in, in the coaches and, and, um, not trying to make fighters something that they're not. So if you are a, a collegiate wrestler that's won multiple titles, like how do we, how do we adapt your striking to complement wrestling? Not like, Oh, well, you just got to be a wrestler. Or you just have to, you just have to learn how to um, strike. So don't wrestle at all. Like that's the worst thing. Like you see that happen all the time. Like, oh, well, they're just working on their striking now. It's like, no, let's just adapt their striking to complement their wrestling. Yeah. Well, speaking of MMA, I I spoke to Tate about his experience in the Ultimate Fighter house. What was that experience like for you? Um, you know, I felt really good in that fight to get into the house. I would actually, I think it was like the anniversary that just happened. And that was actually a fight that I was definitely in the flow state for sure because um we didn't have our normal coaches like claudia Gadelia's coaches at the time um they were like brazilian speaking only um so basically they gave me water in between rounds so like i didn't even have questions or there wasn't any talk in the corners like it was all just very inside and very present and I felt really great. The experience was great. You know, um, I lost a decision that was a really horrible decision um, to get into the house. But uh, I felt like it was made up to me. Like, I, I don't have any ill feelings about it. It's, just, <laughs> it's fine. I just took the long way to get into the UFC. <laughs> <laughs> the scenic route. That seems uh, very customary to me, I guess. Well, but speaking of that, so obviously, I mean, there's not a fighter on the planet that hasn't had a loss, you know, that at least has been fought the traditional route that they should have, not a bunch of, uh, you know, easy fights. So how do you, being up to, you know, up to that point, very successful, I mean, obviously you were doing the competition and the boxing and kickboxing too, but, you know, achieving success over and over again how do you overcome a loss and turn that into fuel to to chase the next win 
I think that an important thing is what your baseline is like, right? Um, if your baseline happiness is is pretty high or you're satisfactory, like you're if, if we're writing on one event, that's scary to me. If we're writing on um, a win or a loss on what your overall happiness is, that's that's um, where we see people fall off. That's where we see fighters make big mistakes after fights and and all the things. Because when it's when you're when it's high, man, it's really high and everything's great. And when it's low, it's really low. Like it sucks. Losing sucks no matter what, right? But like, let's make sure that our baseline health and and mentality is is pretty high, so that when we get low, that it's not as low as it could possibly be. So I think that's a big thing um, is making sure that your overall wellness and happiness and and is is really good. Is real like what are you working on on your daily life to make sure that you're happy? That all your happiness isn't riding on this one event. And so, and also that helps you because it alleviates the stress from the fight itself. Of course we want to win. Ah, who doesn't want to win? Absolutely. But if you're like, man, I don't even know what's going to happen if I lose this fight. Like, oh my God, that sounds daunting to me. Yeah. And I've been, and I've done that. And that's why I can say, hey, you can't have everything riding on this. And this can't be your everything. And you can't identify as this fighter because you're, you're bigger than that. You're better than that. And you have more to offer than that. Is there a lot riding on it? Absolutely. Do you want to win? Hell yeah. But how can we find a healthy relationship with these extremes that we, we put ourselves in? These are extreme lifestyles. But how do we find a bit of, of healthiness and wellness to that? And it, it can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of some of the backstories of some of the fighters of the show and it you know, be like, well, if I don't win this, then we're going to lose our house and I'm not going to be able to feed my child. And, you know, and, and like you said, that is so much pressure to put on a fight, especially when you're in a sport where if it goes a distance, which, you know, I mean, it's not the same as MMA, but even in, in Taekwondo, you know, you, you think that you won the fight clear and then you lose, you know, like, what the hell? So it's not even all in your control. There's, there's other people that if you go the distance, are going to decide your fate for you. So that makes perfect sense, whether it's in the cage or whether it's testing for a fire department. If you put all your eggs in one basket, you know, yeah, it might work out great, but there's a, there's a chance it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you can A, learn from it or B, be, 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 uh, you know, be crushed by it. Exactly that. Exactly. It does transfer over into promotions. It transfers over uh, promotions within the department and positions and, I started, um, I'm super hopeful to kind of spearhead this, um, star team that we are, uh, the, the state police helicopter here is hoist capable, which, uh, we did this great training and I'm like, man, I'm really getting my hopes up for this opportunity to maybe be, um, spearheading this star team. And I'm like, man, I can feel myself kind of building that up. And then I'm like, hey, man, you need to check. You need to have a healthy excitement with that because when it doesn't happen, because who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if we're even, <laughs> I mean, with the state of, of 
the budgetary, all the things that are happening right now with, with everything is like, who knows what's going to happen. And so I'm, I'm constantly putting myself in check to make sure that's a healthy letdown. If it's like, Hey, we can't just establish a SAR team right now in the middle of a pandemic and, um, massive riots. Like, what are you thinking? And it's like, yeah, of course. What am I thinking? However, I'm just really excited, but my baseline is really good. I'm really happy with working the paramedicine that I'm working, training, all the things like I got to put myself back in check to be like, Hey, that's not a, a, that's not a end game. You know, like you can't be crushed by not, not that position, not being there. Yeah. And I think that even plays over into getting injured as a as a responder or even retirement and I'm sure you've seen the same thing I absolutely love the job but my road took me to this I had no idea four years ago I was going to start a podcast but after burying six of my friends in the last two years prior to that this is where it led me like we've got to find solutions to these problems and I'm going to go find the people that have them but you know when you see responders with countdown apps on their phones to their retirement and sometimes we're talking you know five ten years that should be a giant like red flag like maybe you're not loving your career anymore maybe you just need to do some soul searching and refine that burning desire or maybe it's time to look at how else you can make the world better without doing what you seemingly seem to begrudge now absolutely i think that's that's i think that's so huge. I think that it's um, it's just what we do, right? You do you put in the time. You put twenty years in. You do you. That's just one of the silly cliche things of that type of career is that you just put your head down and you go to work and you, you grind it out. But it's like, what are we doing, man? Like, what are you doing to the community? What are you doing to your family? What are you doing to yourself? And it's just not worth it. Yeah, absolutely say right it's easy to say saying like oh well you don't have a family that you're um supporting and you don't have all these things but imagine them having their father like really they're having their father back because i've seen families be torn apart because of shift work or because they're so angry at work and and depressed and they just go home and and drink right because man every time we ran bad call we would meet up and we would have a drink like that was okay like that's not okay. That is not okay. We are not we are not solving problems. We're creating bad habits and we're passing those habits along to people that are coming into the service and that doesn't have to be the way. Absolutely. I'm I'm so glad I asked you that. That's such a good perspective and I agree 100% and the more extreme version again is, you know, as we've seen which is just awful, but suicide, you know, that might push you to not being there for your family at all, whether it's suicide or whether it's, God forbid, it's some cancer or heart disease. You know, there are so many things and I, and I seem to paint a very, um, you know, black and white picture of our profession, but I'm just trying to be devil's advocate on this. There are some people that do a full career and they thrive and their family using it's amazing. They don't feel the pressure from sleep deprivation. Good, good for you. But I think that's the minority. And, and I think it really needs to be put out there that if you are being beaten down by this profession, you're not finding a way to overcome that, then you shouldn't be a slave to a pension. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think that there's more, uh, more avenues to live. A hell- like you said, there are a shift. I mean, I would never sway anybody from 
being a firefighter or working shift work or being I like I love it I, I love every aspect of it all the things but there are things I wish somebody would have just told me hey like you don't have to do that, man. Like, that's not cool. And I think that there's more av- avenues now for us to live healthier shift lifestyles. Um, counseling that isn't taboo because you need to talk to somebody about the three-year-old code that you just worked. It's not a, that's not something normal um, that people see. That's not something that um, I can just process and um, whatever, we'll just figure it out. Like those things can be talked about and, and processed in a healthy way and can make you a better first responder, can make you a better father, can make you a better husband, wife, etc. And we, we have those avenues now, better nutrition. Like let's talk, let's talk about eating junk food just because man, uh, you guys aren't going to have time to cook. I get it all that, but let's be prepared. Like let's not eat a bunch of shit and then work a 48 hour shift and then eat candy and drink uh, rock stars all, all 48 hours. Like that's, what are we doing? This is crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, I want to transition to one more area and then, and then go to some closing questions. But you mentioned Nepal and, and, you know, this is something I think that I think is so enriching for the soul. So good for being an open-minded human being. Um, so tell me about your, your wanderlust and, you know, some of the, the, your favorite places that you've been. Yeah. You know what? Um, Nepal was the most, I barely made it back into the country, um, (laughs) before everything kind of got shut down, but not because it was my most recent travel, but it it was my most, um, beloved travel thus far. I spent, um, about six, almost seven weeks in Nepal. Um, I did get my next yoga teacher training certification, but then after that, I, uh, hike through the Himalayans, which is life-changing nonetheless. So that was definitely, the people in Nepal, like everything just, it's so beautiful. Like the people are so beautiful and they live with little and or nothing. And like true, true, true poverty. And they're so happy and they want to give you anything that, that they have. So you would walk down the street and they would offer you their, um, little sashes that they would have around their necks. The kids would offer you all these things. And it's like, Oh man, (laughs) we don't see anything like that in the States. You know, I mean, there's definitely good people and sweet people, but as a, as a culture, as a whole for them to live so poorly and be so giving and so happy, it was one of the most beautiful, um, inspiring things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I feel like one of the answers to this, you know, as you said, this this time that we're in at the moment is to force every single person that's never left the country to go travel. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then understand if they're racist pieces of shit, then the ridiculousness of their philosophy. And then, you know, the, the, the converse, if they're entitled, then realizing how happiness is not from your material items, you know, and there's just so many lessons that can be learned. Um, I think that's what we should do. Just like a, a, take all this COVID money, put it into airfares, send everyone off to a different country so they can understand other cultures, be grateful for what they have, and then bring their asses back. And then we'll see if everyone still disagrees. 
Oh, absolutely. It, it was like, it was just, oh, man, I, I have, like, I'm still, I still process things from that trip to this day. Like every day, I, I don't think about, every day I think about Nepal. I, I'm not exaggerating. Every day I think about um, the little boy I met where his mom cooked me eggs because I couldn't find eggs. I was staying at the yoga home where they didn't have any protein and I was about to lose my shit. <laughs> I saw the little shack that these people live in and she was selling eggs from their chickens. And I'm like, man, somehow through this language barrier, I'm going to ask her to cook me eggs, like point at the eggs, get the pan from her. Cause you can see that they live and sell in the same, I mean, this, this, this place is, um, 10 feet by 10 feet and they live in the back and they have a little house, like a little kitchen, and and that's it. That's it. And the, their family lives there. And so I'm like, I'll pay any amount of money to get these eggs. So I'm trying to explain to her. Anyway, we worked out this beautiful relationship, and I would go and get eggs every morning, and I would pay her. And she would be the happiest person for me. When I would get there, my eggs would be ready, and she would have a little placemat set out for me. All, um, no, uh an extreme language barrier like no common ground on any type of language there but we just beautiful friendship and like i was so sad to leave now if you could bring um almost like a philosophy back how would you educate the people in the west and i'm gonna say the west i mean because you know i'm from england you know we have that same kind of problem over there that we have here in the u.s how would you explain the happiness that you saw in Nepal with so few material objects to the people in such affluent countries as England and uh, America? Well, that's a great question. I think it's about knowing yourself well and being able to value human interaction with human interaction period, right? Um, I think every experience that you have, you can, it can be something positive. It can be, even if, you know, we take positive out of negative situations all the time. So cliche, all the things, but like to really know yourself and to, to put the time in to, to really be minimal and strip everything away no things, no possessions, no um, labels of yourself, right? Like, oh, I'm a firefighter. I'm a paramedic. I want to do this. I'm a fighter. I UFC. All the, all the strip all that away, and we're happy people. I think that, honest, honestly, in my heart, I believe that when you strip all the shit away from people, people are good-hearted people, and I think you just got to strip it down. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, and I always refer to humans in general as like kindergartners or preschoolers. You know, like you see these videos. This is one I put up uh, now, probably about two, three months ago now. It's gone viral. These, this little um, preschooler was, one was black, one was white and they're best friends. I think it was in New York and their parents were, you know, approaching and they both took off and, and ran towards each other and hugged each other. That to me is the little human in all of us. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are some people, and I just had one of my friends, Shannon, on the show. Their childhood after that, or even before that, was so damn awful 
that that drags them down a very dark path. But, you know, if you can find that, if you were just parented to be a hateful human being or if you did have trauma, whatever it is, I think that finding that happy preschoolers inside you that laughs at, you know, butterflies and, and ch- kicks a ball with all ki- you know kids of all colors and creeds and sexual orientation because they don't care because they're just playing football um i think that's it and it's 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 so crazy to reverse engineer misery and hate and realize that if you go far enough back you were that giggling little kid once absolutely yes and that was it like the kids were just beautiful there and they didn't Oh man, it was just every everybody kept that childlike um, happiness with them. They didn't let any of the other stuff build up that we're talking about stripping away. It was never put up. They never. They didn't have the possessions. They don't have the labels. They don't have all the things that kind of cloud what what we can really be as a as a as humans, as people, as good loving. Um, kind-hearted good people that I think we really are and I think that it's a scary thing to say and I'm sure right now because there's riots and people shooting people and and all the things that are going right now but we've just built up all this stuff and we just need to strip it all down and be humans again and and I think we can I think we're I think we can and if we can't um it's a it's a hard place to live in, you know. Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I really appreciate your insight insight on that. Um, all right, well, I want to transition to some some closing questions, but to bridge that, um, you know, you you obviously transition out of the fire service. You're a tactical medic now. You've got a yoga studio, and you've also got a hand in um, the company with Tate Caveman Coffee. So tell me how you found that project, and and tell people listening what it is. Caveman Coffee is a really cool jam like uh we um, got together as a bunch of friends uh k uh tate fletcher keith jardine and Lacey mackey um are the founding fathers of the business as we were like hey you know what we love doing is drinking coffee with friends and so we decided that we would drink coffee with friends and create this coffee company it was really cool to be at its infancy because i used to go to the shared warehouse where we used to ship out the coffee and I would print the UPS labels and, and ship the coffee out myself. Cause I, it was the coolest thing. We had um, some roasters here locally. So we would do cupping sessions, taste coffee, um, learn all these notes about drinking coffee and trying to be fancy and all these things. Right. And, and so it's really cool and we've learned a lot and it really just started just like that. And, and it's something that we, um, we believe in it as a company. I, I think that the caveman coffee um, flies under a ban is is pirate life essentially, and I think that we just kind of support a culture of pirating your life back. And so, what does that mean? Is is um, there's so many societal expectations and and provisions that we find ourselves being a slave to, you know, and and. I think as a company, we we stand for how do you pirate your life back? You know, like how do you take control of, of what you believe in and what you educate yourself in and, and how you fly your flag? And, and I think that's what it comes down to. 
um, a lot of the time, you know, is, is what you stand for. And can the people around you tell me what you stand for? You know, is it not just something, are you really walking in that light? And I think that as silly as it, as it is, it's a cave, it's a coffee company, but we naturally stand for so much more than that. So cavemancoffeeco.com. We have a ton of products. We just came out with a hibiscus tea that um, doesn't have any sugar. It's slightly carbonated, and it's the best. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that, because I meant to ask Tate in more detail, and we didn't get a chance to really expand on it. So I'm glad that we did on this interview. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, uh, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, the Power of Now, of course. Why? The Power of Now is one of the books that I love to read just like a chapter here and there or read it from its top to the bottom, listen to it, read it, um, love it. I think it applies to... Um, I think everybody can take something from it. Is that Eckhart Tolle? Oh, yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right, then what about a movie? Any movies that you love? The Fountain. Fountain. Yeah. And then documentaries. Um, the Michael Jordan one that just came out. Yeah, I forget what it's called, like EJ3 or whatever. Yeah, I've only watched the first episode of that though i've been um i've been traveling so much which is weird to say that i was traveling i um i really want to so long backstory i volunteered in a um i don't it's not a rural part of the state but a part of the state that was targeted really high with a lot of uh covid positive patients and so i went and worked at covid positive clinic for about four weeks and so I started the documentary before I left and I was like, oh, I really want this. But then I got put on night shifts and I was actually mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted when I was out there. And so I basically would just go back to the hotel and sleep and cry and eat. And so <laughs> I didn't have time to do anything else. Healthy cries. It was healthy cries, but it was just a lot and a, a lot of a lot. So. Um, I want to finish that documentary to answer the question in long. Brilliant. Well, speaking of that, so, you know, as you know, as, as a medic and being kind of on the inside, you're kind of standing there looking at, you know, the what's being sold on a lot of the mainstream media, which seems to be, you know, definitely fear-mongering to get, you know, paid advertising spots. And then you have the, the true life... Um, stories from the hospitals from the responders like new york like yeah okay we are definitely overwhelmed there are you know far more people than we we're expecting but then you have a lot of america that i've seen and heard from my my uh you know responder friends not just here but all over europe as well where you know it's almost the the, the opposite yeah we've had some covid positives but really not seeing anything crazy as far as you know very very ill patients what were you seeing in that little pocket uh, the demographic is really tough there. And so um, it was a, a high percentage of Native American demographic. Um, a lot of times maybe um, diabetic, maybe poor respiratory health, maybe um, overweight. So we're talking about really target demographics that people are having trouble with anyway. And we're talking about um, a lower income part of the state. And so a lot of their 
single dwelling homes have 10, 15 people living into these houses. And a high percentage of those houses don't have running water. So as we've known that um, one of the biggest defense against COVID is hand washing and proper hand washing. But when you don't have running water and you're living in a house with 15 relatives, um, you could understand how it's relatively quickly spread and how well that became a really high target area. Um, so what I saw was exactly that was a, a high target area with um, a lot of demographic factors that played into high risk people. And it was a tough, it was a tough haul. Um, I actually initially volunteered to go to New York. And so then when it trickled down and it said, they said, yeah, we can take you in New York or we can take you in Gallup, New Mexico. And I was like, what? I can stay in my home state. Absolutely. I want to give back here. I'll stay here. I'll travel. It's about an hour. It's about two hours west of me. And, um, I just kind of stayed up there, especially cause I was in, I did work a positive clinic. So everybody there was, um, positive. I did work a step down clinic so they were actually getting ready to potentially be released home if they didn't have a safe place to go where they could um, kind of self-quarantine, then we try to keep them at that facility. I also worked a really um, poor condition nursing home that had probably, I don't know, 15 patients positive and maybe three patient negatives. Um, and that was really tough because that was a situation where it was just not proper funding, not proper education for everybody. And, and a lot of the, the fatalities that we saw in New York were nursing homes also. And so you're talking about high dem demographics, people that were, you know, had comorbidities of course, but also didn't need to um, pass in the manner that they did. So regardless of your political stance or where you think COVID came from, there's still people dying from it. And it's not a, a peaceful death by any means. It's basically drowning in your own fluids. And so whatever that means to people that think it's some conspiracy, all the things, I don't, I don't care what you think or what you thought. But I think that it's important to know that people are still passing in a manner that they didn't need to, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that that's what's very sad as as well from a responder perspective is all those elements that you hit on. There's a potential for more resilience. Here's a potential. Okay, the overcrowding, poverty in the Native American, you know, uh, tribal area, the education that's creating obesity, the diabetes, the hypertension, the, the smoking. There's all these elements that we can make our nation more resilient because COVID shouldn't have a fatal response, you know, in a healthy immune system, even in, in, in an elderly health, healthy immune system. But what I'm seeing with this term new normal, which in my naive thing was, oh, you mean we're actually going to learn from these, these mistakes? And, and, you know, we're going to, we're going to change the way we address the environment and we're going to look at obesity. But no, the new normal from what I'm understanding from, you know, the, the conversations being had, oh, we're all going to wear masks now. We're all going to wash our hands more. We're all going to stay away from each other instead of, hey, all these, you know, People in this town are, are overweight and malnourished and don't have running water. 
can we address that rather than, you know, focus on the virus? So that's what's kind of heartbreaking to me is the same exact conversation that the, the, the health space has been having for a long time as far as the, the preventative health space. That message is there's no better time for us to work on the health of our nation mentally and physically. And it's being lost in this, you know, this, this focus on the deaths of COVID as if COVID is the only thing that's that's the the variable which is you know such a such a horrific way of avoiding the true underlying issues of which covid no doubt in my mind was the final nail in the coffin for these poor people right i 100% agree absolutely like let's fix the problem like let's um let's <laughs> i mean i know it's it's a hell it's a hell of a fight but like why 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 not now? Like we, I almost feel like we're we're starting it at zero. Like we're we're just we're just uh, wrecking havoc as a as a country right now. Like let's just let's just clean it out and and start at zero and and let's educate ourselves. Like let's really really educate yourself. Let's not read the tabloids and let's not jump to conclusions about political agendas. Like let's really like what is in line with what you walk in every single day and do you believe in that and does the person next to you know that you believe in that and then and then we can walk in that light but until then if you're you're posting all these things and and you're this next person and defund the police and all the all the all the stuff that's going on you better be well educated to walk in that light that's all i have to say yeah well darkness is probably what's gonna happen because everyone will be you know God knows what would happen in the crime if 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 some of these people enacted what they envisioned as far as law enforcement, which is you know ridiculous. But do they need to have standards and training and accountability and you know and, and all these other things? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So yeah, but so now we have an opportunity to fix the problem, right? COVID says, hey, um, these people are at risk. Like, let's fix the problem. Hey, it. You know what? It's coming across the board that. Maybe our law enforcement isn't trained in jujitsu or uh, or not just jujitsu, but body mechanics very well, like simple body mechanics. Like let's let's train these guys, man. Like let's let's have them have every option available to them before they have to take some sort of deadly force. And if they have to, then let's stand behind our men and women that are protecting us. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I'm flogging a dead horse on this too. Let's look at our drug policy. Let's look at the, the core of why our streets are so dangerous for other civilians and for law enforcement so that these men and women are not putting each other in these positions in the first place that's causing police officers to be murdered or civilians to be murdered. I know when I get to a house as an EMS provider and it looks not so safe and the lights are off and I might be a little scared. You know what I do is I call for PD and I ask them to clear the house. Like those, that's, those are the people that I'm relying on in order to provide medical care. And we're putting those people in, in because of that, because, because I've been to this house before and it's, um, they're all, it's a drug house and, and they're always erratic. Like, yep. Hey guys, I need your help again. Like here we are back in this situation. We're just let's let's heal our communities. Let's let's get to the to the root of the problems and and let's really find that. Let's find programs that work. Let's find um, better rehab. Let's find better meetings for people. Let's let's find 
I know that's all money. Absolutely. When it comes down to it, you can't just have these things that come up, but let's figure that out. You know, we're putting money into things right now. I know we are. Yeah. Well, and- also, I mean, you've got, you know, prisons. Our prisons are 600% you know, more 600% the size, the prisoner size than 50 years ago. And these are profit-based prisons. So the money's <laughs> coming from somewhere there to incarcerate our population. So what if we funded those into prevention, you know, into turning addicts into patients, not criminals, for example, and decriminalizing or legalizing addiction so that, you know, we're not punishing people with mental health problems and throwing them into a jail cell? Right, exactly. Mental health um, comes that like so, so. What is an addiction? Addiction is a mental health problem, right? So like, so why can't we figure? I'm addicted to adrenaline. I'm we're at, oh, adrenaline junkie. All the things like we joke about it, but it's like, man, is it, it's real. It's real, and people are fighting these this mental illness that we're. Um, I could be a criminal just the same. It could have been so easy to never walk into Mike Winklejohn's kickboxing gym. And I would, uh, I would say that I'm 99.9% sure that I would be pretty damn close to a professional criminal Yeah. or dead. I don't know. Yeah. Well, exactly. And it's, there's those mentors, you know, and that's the thing is there's members of the community that are doing something positive as well, rather than just post, you know, posting on Facebook and arguing with each other. There's people in yeah. the community that are actually bringing solutions to problems. Right. All right. Well, then one, one of the last uh, wrap-up questions. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Tim Kennedy. Have you had Tim Kennedy on? Yeah, I've had Tim actually three times. And I want to say just before I carry on with this question, thank you to Dr. Bo Hightower because he suggested getting you on when I had him over a year ago now. So we made it happen. <laughs> Um, yes, I love Dr. Bo. He's, um, man, he's helped me through so many things mentally, emotionally, and physically. Like there was times where I would just go to see him when, uh, he had a separate gym, uh, office from the other. <laughs> he's, he's like part therapist, part, uh, physical therapist, part chiropractor, part whatever. He's a, an amazing human for sure. Um, I'm, of course you've had Tim on. Um, Tim is, I'm so glad and thankful for the time that Tim spent in Albuquerque because, um, he trained here at Jackson's for a long time and, um, I was thankful enough to get to know him, but he's, he's such a great advocate for everybody in the service. Um, let me think. While you're thinking, I don't know if you still, um, connected with cowboy but i i've always thought he would be an interesting one just because of, of again like you said the adrenaline junkie element and you know just squeezing every at least it appears to be squeezing every ounce of fun out of life with all the different things that he does you know cowboy would be uh phenomenal um he we're really cool and i actually made my ufc debut on his undercard in Poland and I've learned so much from cowboy about exactly that. Like if you're not having fun, then you shouldn't be doing it. Like if you're not, maybe it scares you a bit. Like, uh, he was, I I talked to him about, um, trekking through the mountains in Nepal. I actually talked to him before I went on the trek because it wasn't 
super planned and then there's like a big snowstorm and then they were like it's really icy you should probably have a guide and um the super badass chick that I went with as a rock climber from the Alps and she was like yeah I think we'll be okay and I'm like yeah okay cool whatever you say <laughs> and it was actually which is not the person you call or talk to before you're questioning if you should do something because then you're just you know you're gonna get the go-ahead no matter what from cowboy but I did talk to him before I went to Nepal and I kind of sent him a picture of the the trail and the trek and like man it's kind of you know it's kind of sketchy and he was like dude send me a picture from the top and I was like okay (laughs) that dude like he's just and I did I sent him a video from the top and like you can hear my breath I'm out and it's like one slip and and that's it you know and um we probably could have had a guide it would put in or maybe some proper climbing gear but like we just roughed it out and and um I learned a lot about myself on that trip also and a lot of trust in myself finally like you really got to trust your steps otherwise you're uh it's a it's a long way down but I he would be great and he's taught me so much and he's his dad was a firefighter oh really well there you go there's another tie-in then yep so his dad is um it was I believe um out in Colorado a career like I think he retired so he's always been super supportive and and um loves loves the fire guys for sure so yes cowboy would be an amazing um interview brilliant well i'm not making assumptions but if we're able to make that work that would be incredible but we will uh, you know pursue that but um all right so then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and, and um, we'll reiterate caveman coffee as well what do you do to decompress these days yoga I was assuming that was probably going to be one of the answers. You know what? I just we just kind of opened up the the new studio space, and um, well, we're ready to open. I guess I should say we're kind of um, still on certain precautions, but um, it's nice when you own your own yoga studio. You can just go, and it's a hot yoga studio, so I just go turn the heat on, kind of move my body, find my breath, and um, have a little bit of a meditative practice and. Uh, that makes the, all the difference in the world, man, is just finding that breath and, and finding a moment to center yourself and and just be here, you know. And and um, I'm finding the ability to find myself in the present moment without having to uh, hoist myself into the arroyo for a extrication of a patient. You know, I'm able to find the present moment a little more easy as I practice and and um, I, I can find that through yoga. Brilliant. Well, total opposite side of that equation. Have you got a, a fight lined up with the UFC? I don't right now. I think everything is just so crazy. Um, we'll see uh, once things stable out a little bit and, and then um, I'll definitely go from there. That three weeks of, of being out... Um, in the COVID positive area was it kind of took me out of play just as far as even training. Cause right now I'm training, of course, everybody's starting to train again, but I'm always working out. I'm always um, fit and ready. And, and I've definitely maintained my weight. Uh, so that that was always the thing too. Like you never want to have to turn down a fight because you're like 30 pounds over your fight weight. Like I never wanted to be that fighter. And so, um, Hey, if they called, I, I absolutely, <laughs> I, w- I would. 
Um, but there's nothing on the books right now. Brilliant. Yeah, well, I think that, that goes back to the fire service too, just to tie that in for a second, is there's no seasons, you know? So that's, I think, something that a lot of, you know, tactical athletes have to understand is that you always have to be fight ready because you, the only time you can say, all right, I'm going to get fat now is if you wanted to after you retire. Absolutely. For sure. Brilliant. All right. So for people listening, um, let's reiterate where they can find Caveman Coffee. Please tell them where the studio is if they want to come and actually take a class with you and then where you can find you online as well. Absolutely. You can get Caveman Coffee at cavemancoffeeco.com. But even better, you can get it off of Amazon. And so it'll ship super quick wherever you are. Um, the yoga studio here in Albuquerque is infused yoga and fitness and we're on tramway and Candelaria and you can find the, that link on my personal Instagram and that's Jody Escabel, E-S-Q-U-I-B-E-L and that's across the board is just Jody Escabel. So you can find me on any of the avenues in that light. Brilliant. Well, Jody, I want to say thank you so much. Uh, like I said, Bo suggested you a long time ago. But the universe has a really strange way of kicking me up the ass when it's time to to reach out to someone. And with you coming back from the uh, from Nepal and then you know working with the COVID patients, I think this was a perfect time to do the the conversation. So thank you for being so generous with your time. No problem. Thank you. I appreciate it, and and thanks for the platform for everybody. And and I think that's super important to have a community of us that uh, can kind of walk in that light of wellness and, and know that there's people out there for support.